My name is Lisa Cameron, and I've had the pleasure of helping lead VBS worship this week, and it's been so, so wonderful. Um, I want to read the scripture today, and it's uh, Psalm 25, verses 4 through 11. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, Lord, we ask that the, the plea, the prayer that we see here would be our heart's plea as well. Teach us, O Lord. Teach us. Speak to us and teach us. May we learn to know you. May we learn your character. May we see how we are to be changed and transformed by an encounter with the living God through the living word that he has spoken to us. Lord, as our kids have been focused upon this psalm and this truth all week, may our hearts focus upon it now, and may you teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It has been quite the week here at ABC. Vacation Bible School has been in full swing. We had a great group of volunteers and a great response from the community uh, the best response that most of our folks could remember. We also, for the first time, had an intentional time of ministering to parents and adults alongside our kids this past VBS through our time at Mission Alberta. Besides connecting with people in the community with a lot of great local ministries, the Lord filled those five nights at Mission Alberta with plenty of unrushed time getting to know better the people in our community, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I can, I can look around this morning and see some faces that I got to know for the first time or got to know better through our time together at Mission Alberta. Because there is one thing that gospel ministry will always require of us. One thing. Time. Time. Time investing in people. Time investing in kids. Gospel ministry will always require time. Time is precious. You don't have, I only have so much of it to spend. But time invested in people is time invested in eternity. And that's always time well spent, isn't it? It's been quite the week with Mission Alberta and Vacation Bible School with many internal, eternal investments made. Our theme for VBS this year was Twist and Turns. Uh, following Jesus changes the game. 
And our theme verse for this week was Psalm 25, verse 4. If you've got a Bible, open it. Psalm 25, verse 4 says this. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Today we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Psalms. Uh, And what better way to kick off a new series and finish off VBS than by looking at the psalm that our kids focused on this past week. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 25. We're going to look at eight verses from Psalm 25, eight verses and four truths. If you're taking notes this morning, you can treat these like four headings, four truths in four headings, and each of these truths also comes with a plea. It comes with its own prayer, its own proper response. The first truth and first heading we encounter is this, we don't know God's ways. We don't know God's ways, verses 4 and 5. Look again at verse 4 and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. We don't naturally know God's ways. And so we need to be taught We don't know God's ways, and therefore, our plea to God is, teach us, Lord, teach us your truth. The fact that we need to be taught something implies that we don't naturally know it. Because you don't need to be taught things that you already know, right? I graduated high school at the top of my class in calculus and physics, but when I went to college, my degree program only required one math class. That I take. And so I chose college algebra. And on the very first day of class, I walk in and the teacher writes on the board the number 100. And she begins by pointing at the first zero and says, This is the ones place. The next zero, this is the tens place. This is the hundreds place. And I say, I think I'm in the wrong class. But really, I only imagine myself saying it because I don't leave that class. I buckle down and I get that easy A, but I was very bored doing it because you don't need to be taught something you already know. Unless, of course, it's something like grammar. You were taught grammar, but let's be honest, you never really learned it. You never learned what a gerund really was or technically where you're supposed to put those commas. You never really learned it because you knew that they were just going to teach it to you again next year in English. All over again, you'd be hearing the same things. Perhaps you did know the correct uses of whom and whom at some point to take a test, but after that, you probably forgot. For me, it really wasn't until I studied another language in college that I began to really understand my native language and grammar. In a similar way, It wasn't until I studied what the Bible said about God that I really began to understand myself and how I tick. Like with grammar, we can't really learn ourselves until we learn some big truths about God. But someone will ask, well, how do do we get that information? How do we learn about God and his ways and thereby come to understand ourselves better as well? I'll tell you this morning, it's not going to be through scientific observation. 
the way we learn many other things, by looking through telescopes and microscopes that we come to know God. Don't get me wrong, we can learn a lot. We can learn to better appreciate some things about God by gazing through telescopes and microscopes. We can learn by looking through a telescope and better understand something about God's greatness and power and the scope of his imagination on display in the vastness of the universe. We can look through a microscope and better understand that God's care and attention that stretches down to the cellular level. Just one gram of your DNA contains 455 million terabytes worth of unique information, making up your genetic code. Each of us is a book too large to read, living in a universe too massive to map. Science can give us a sense of God's greatness and power, a sense of his level of care and infinite imagination, but no telescope can ever make you able to know something about God's mercy. No microscope can teach you about God's righteousness. If we are to learn those things, some of the most important truths in all of life, if we are to learn what matters most, then God himself must tell us. God himself must be our teacher. Our plea must be, verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in truth and teach me. In order to learn some of the most important things in life, we can't look outward through scientific tools. We also can't look inward through self-reflection. We must look up for God himself to speak and teach us. We must look to a God who has come down, who put on flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 18 says that no one has seen God at any time but Jesus, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Jesus has taught us. He has explained him. As God in flesh, Jesus came explaining and exemplifying God's character. In words, we all can understand. In acts, we all can observe. We don't naturally know God's ways, but God himself has come to us to explain himself. It's our place, therefore, to listen, to be taught, and to expect that his ways will sometimes cross ours. As my father, who's here, he often says, we can't expect God to run his train on our track, can we? We should expect God's will to cross ours at some points. If it didn't, if God, God's will never crossed mine, but only affirmed my every desire, then it wouldn't be me being remade in his image. Instead, I would be the one remaking him in mine. And that's one of the things that people love to do. We excel at doing this, remaking God. In our own image, making a God in our image who affirms and justifies everything my heart wants to do. But you need to know this the world needs to know this that a God who 
whose ways conveniently affirm my every desire isn't really good news. It may seem like good news, but it isn't. Because many of my natural desires are self-destructive. Many of my desires are just plain selfish. Many of my desires don't lead to my flourishing, but to my hurt. Many of my desires will lead me to despair if I give in to them. A God who affirms my every desire is no different than a parent who affirms their child's every whim. Most of our kids would be dead if we let them do everything they wanted to do. If not dead, they would certainly be spoiled, rotten. They wouldn't grow into mature, flourishing adults. And if we know that as very flawed parents, as flawed fathers and mothers, how much more does God know that as the father who designed humanity? God knows that sin has twisted many of our desires. And we will often swerve from the right path. We don't know God's ways. But he does know ours. And that's the second truth, second heading. God does know our ways. God does know our ways, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. We don't naturally know God's ways, and so we need to be taught to remember them. God does comprehensively know our ways, and so we need to plead that he might forget them. Verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. God does know our ways, and our ways from our youth up have not been good. Our ways have not been his ways. We've sinned. We've strayed from the right path. We're like that shopping cart. You get it piggly wiggly that has that swerve. It always wants to swerve one way, not go straight. We can't get it right. We can't go straight. Our sin nature has bent something in us, like a bent wheel on a cart, so that we swerve from the straight and narrow path. And God sees it. He sees our swerving much more than we see it. We may compare ourselves to others and think, we're not so bad. But God compares us to what is really required of us. He holds up true justice. He compares us with the standard of real righteousness. And you know what true justice is, right? Justice is giving each person their due, giving to each their due. And God says, this is your due. This is what you owe. The first greatest commandment, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second commandment's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we don't give God or our neighbor the love that they're due, we act unjustly. You act unjustly. Like that shopping cart, you are continually swerving away, not giving others what they are due. We especially do not give God 
the love and loyalty of our hearts that is due him as our maker, as our creator. Days, weeks, months go by without gratitude, without love flowing to him like it should. We are continually swerving, falling short. And that's just the good we failed to do. There's also the evil that we have intentionally committed. The lies we've told to make ourselves look better. The people we've manipulated to get our way. The words we've spoken in anger. The wounds we've inflicted on others that they still carry. Each of these things aren't just evil that we've done, hurting others, hurting ourselves. Each of these are also acts of treason against God. They are acts of cosmic treason against God's rule and his ways. God knows our ways, therefore our plea to him is, remember your mercy. Remember your mercy. Please forget our ways. Forget the sin of our youth and remember your loving kindness. Remember your compassion. But how can God grant such a plea? It's like we're standing before a judge pleading, don't remember my many crimes, my repeated acts of treason. Instead, remember your mercy. Remember mercy. Could a just judge wink his eye and pass over all our long list of crimes? No. He couldn't and maintain justice. He couldn't justify the guilty and still be a just judge. We all see that. We would impeach that judge who continually let guilty criminals go. But God, in his wisdom, has devised a way to still be just and to justify the ungodly by sending his own son into the world to absorb our punishment and satisfy justice for us. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross so that God could answer this prayer in Psalm 25. Don't remember my sin, Lord. Remember your mercy. Jesus has purchased God's answer to the plea found in these verses. Now, because of Jesus, God can look at us and only remember his loving kindness and compassion. Because Jesus has absorbed every drop of justice for us, for our sin, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for us to face. No drop of wrath is left for us. In heaven, God will never bring up our past treasonous acts and throw them in our face. Because that certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross. It has been dealt with. The sins of our youth have been cast into the sea of divine forgetfulness, never to wash up again on eternity's shores. Without Jesus purchasing that grace for us, heaven would not be so full of joy as it is meant to be. If we are always concerned, our past sins might be thrown in our face. You and I need to know that for all eternity, that when we look into the face of God, 
he is not remembering our past failures, but all the ways he has loved us. That is good news. Let's see the uh, third truth in heading, verses 8 and 9. Third truth is this. We ought to know God's character. We ought to know God's character. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. I've already said that we don't naturally know God's ways, but there is a sense in which we ought to. There is truth about God's nature and character in us that we suppress. Paul says in Romans 1 that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them. We ought to know, verse 8, that good and upright is the Lord. We ought to know that. We ought to innately know some things about God's character, but in our pride, we suppress that innate knowledge. We suppress the truth that God has written on our hearts. Pride intoxicates us to the point that we can't read what God has written there upon our own hearts. Therefore, our plea ought to be, Lord, teach our hearts humility. Teach our hearts humility. Give us a humble hearts to receive your truth. We already have this precious promise, verse 9. He leads the humble in justice and teaches the humble his way. God will lead. He will teach us if we come to him humbly, like a child. Jesus said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean for us to come to God like a child? Jesus tells us in the very next verse. He says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God puts an incredible value on humility. Why? Because humility isn't artificially lowering ourselves, is it? It's actually seeing ourselves as we really are. Seeing ourselves as God sees us. The chasm between you and God is much, much wider than it is between you and the most foolish child you know. Humility before God at the end of the day is just seeing ourselves as we really are. Seeing ourselves in light of God. Seeing ourselves as God sees us. Pride, on the other hand, inflates our self-worth beyond all reason. Pride says, I will have it my own way. I know what's best for me. I know the best path to my own personal fulfillment Those are the thoughts of a rebellious child, aren't they? How often, as teenagers, did we in our pride think, we know better than our parents, right? We know better. We think that we know better. We think that we know better than God. And I'm not just talking about here a pride that is irreligious. Pride can fill the hearts of both the irreligious and the religious person. Pride says, I did it my way. 
I am capable of choosing my own path. I can be my own functional savior. But whatever our pride offers up, whether it's offered in religious hands or irreligious hands, our best works are like filthy rags in God's sight. When tainted with pride, all our righteousness is like a filthy garment when the light of God shines upon it. Your best efforts fall short. Your best wisdom is misguided. But when we come to God in humility, realizing that we could never be good enough to save ourselves, then we can humbly embrace a Savior whose work is perfect, whose righteousness is perfect. We humble ourselves under his yoke and discover he is gentle and humble in heart. His way is right. His work is pleasant. Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. So in order to learn God's character, we need to put to death our pride and plead for God to teach our hearts humility, true humility. Here's a fourth and final thing I want you to see from Psalm 25. God does know what is best. God does know what is best. We see that in verses 10 and 11. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. God does know what is best. All of his paths are loving kindness and truth. God knows what is best for his work in the world and for his people in the world. There's an easy application to make here. Easy application. If this is the way God is, God knows what is best, what are we to do? We are to trust him. Trust him. As we look at the world around us, perhaps we feel overwhelmed by the chaos and destruction, by the violence and depravity. What are we to do? We are to trust in a God whose paths are all loving kindness and truth. He will bring history to its appointed end. He will revive his work in the midst of the years. If we see the tide of truth going out in our day, we're to trust. It will come back in. The tide always comes back in. God knows what is best for his work in the world and what's best for his people in the world. Fortunately, we don't have to guess about God's path for our lives. We don't have to guess about God's will for our lives because he has told us. He's declared it to us in words we can all read and understand. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This word lights up the only path that is full of loving kindness and truth. Here, God has revealed 95% of our daily lives. You realize that? It feels like it. 95% is here. Here, he tells us to live a quiet life in all godliness. Here, he tells us to honor our parents, to love 
and respect our spouse. Here he tells us not to exasperate our children, not to let the sun go down on our anger. Here he tells us how to respond when wronged, how to respond when tempted, how to respond when we're anxious. God tells us how to speak here, our every word. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. God tells us here to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God has declared his will for 95% of our daily lives and decisions right here. And yet, we agonize over the remaining 5%, don't we? Lord, what is your will? Should I take this job or that job? Should I make that move? Should I accept that promotion? Should I go to that school? Should I start that business? What is your will in this big decision that's before me? If that's the way you're prone to think, let me take a burden off your shoulders this morning. God cares much, much more that you walk in the 95% of his will revealed here than he cares about that one big decision you're agonizing over. How often does a big decision come around in your life anyway? Big decisions don't even make up 5% of our lives, do they? We may choose a vocation once or twice or maybe 10 times throughout the course of our entire lives. God would have us know that it doesn't matter what career, career, career we choose if we do it for his glory, living out his revealed will in his word. You can be a garbage man who loves his wife as Christ loves the church, who humbly puts others before himself, who does his daily work to the glory of God. You can be a garbage man and far better to be that garbage man who does the 95% of God's will revealed here than to be the pastor who preaches it but doesn't. Right? The occasional big decisions that God hasn't spoken to are not as important as the daily small decisions that he has spoken about. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his testimonies and commandments. Verse 10. Our problem is, verse 10, our, sorry, our problem is verse 11. All of his ways are loving, kindness, and truth, but verse 11, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Our problem is that we swerve from those paths, thinking that we know better. We all know it. Our swerving from the paths of loving, kindness, and truth have been often. Our swerving has been great. Instead of using our words to speak life and grace and truth, We've used our words to wound and hurt and shame and cast down. Instead of healing, 
our tongues have often been sparks of fire, setting everything around us ablaze. We've swerved off the path. Instead of trusting, we've been fearful. Instead of rejoicing, we've despaired. Instead of being content, we've been envious and lustful. We've strayed off the path to our own hurt and find ourselves again in need of healing and pardon. The good news is that this is precisely why Jesus came. Verse 11, pardon my iniquity for it is great. This is precisely why Jesus came. Jesus came seeking those who were straying. He came to seek and save the lost, those who were straying off the path of loving kindness and truth. Jesus came to purchase our pardon when we had abandoned the way, when we made a mess of obeying the revealed will of God. And in a twist that no one saw coming, Jesus offers us a great exchange. He will take the punishment of our strain upon himself and in exchange offer to us the reward of his perfect performance, his perfect life. This is more than an unexpected twist in the story. This is, as we heard in VBS, this is changing the game. This is a game changer. You no longer have to try to win the game of life through your own performance. Instead, you walk freely upon paths of loving kindness and truth through trusting completely in the perfect performance of another. Because believing in Jesus really does change the game. Father, I ask this morning that every heart would know this game-changing reality that we have sinned, we are in need of great pardon, great grace, but Christ has come, and his grace is greater than all of our sin. His performance is perfect, and he offers it freely to us all. May we, in our hearts this morning, embrace him by faith. May every heart of our, of our children, of, uh, of our oldest adults, may every heart, old and young, embrace Jesus as all of our righteousness, all of our good before a holy God. Lord, may this be the work you are doing in us now for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.